Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money. The best things in life are free. But you can give them to the birds and bees. I need From Fool Global Headquarters, this is Motley Fool Money. It's the Motley Fool Money radio show. I'm Chris Hill, and joining me in studio this week from Motley Fool One, Jason Moser, from Motley Fool Supernova, Matt Argusinger, and from Million Dollar Portfolio, Ron Gross. Good to see you, gents. Hey, Howdy. Happy to be here. We've got a few companies with earnings results and a couple of companies with brand new CEOs. The head of Pixar and Disney Animation, Ed Catmull, is our guest this week. And as always, we'll give you an inside look at the stocks on our radar. But we begin with the big macro. The jobs report for April was surprising in a good way. 288,000 jobs added, and the unemployment rate dropped to 6.3%. And, Ron, when you throw in some pretty strong consumer spending numbers that we saw earlier in the week, how are we looking? I like what I see. I think it's great. Um, 288,000 best since January 2012. February and March both revised up. Um, the Fed felt comfortable tapering another $10 billion from their stimulus program. Uh, GDP um, that we saw a few days ago, um, definitely the weak point, uh, only 0.1%, um, which, which on the face of it is a worrying headline. But I actually do believe that is weather-related. I'm sorry for those of you who are sick of hearing us <laughs> talk about the weather. But I do think that is the primary reason for that weak number. And I think we're already seeing a pickup. Maddie, anything stand out to you? Well, people are going to look at the jobs number, which I thought was, was a great number. They're going to say, well, there were a lot of people that left the workforce, You know, the quality of the jobs might not be that good. But I, I'm an optimist, and I agree with Ron. The numbers look really good to me. Government numbers tend to get a bad rap, but I think we see we, we really now see a trend, I think, that the economy is is much more on firmer footing. So, and, and this is just another indication. And Jason, we don't know how the numbers break out, but what we do know is that when people leave the workforce, some of them are leaving because they're retiring. They're leaving because they want to, yeah. No, I, I think this was, I, I compare this jobs report to that Seinfeld episode of Even Steven. You know how he like throws $20 out the window and then finds $20 in his jacket? Pocket, so I mean, there were you know 288,000 jobs is great. Uh, numbers revised up for February and March, so that's great. I mean, obviously the participation rate fell, and that's not good. Uh, wages are stagnant, and that's not so good. But uh, you know, I mean, I think that things are still turning uh, and going in the right direction. I think that uh, this probably. Really, I think gave the weather excuse for all of these companies this quarter a little bit more uh, stable footing there because it it really was a a bad winter all the way around and uh, and I think these numbers uh, help bear that out. Well, you have to re- also remember that we we're, we're in a little bit of a different economy nowadays. I mean, I don't want to say things are different now. You know, than it's they a are new normal. But but there are you know with the share economy, people working from home, doing part time things. You know. Doing services for other people. There's a lot of stuff. There's a lot of economic activity on the labor front that doesn't get picked up in these government numbers. Agreed. At pre-recession, let's remember we were about a five percent unemployment rate. We've now got ourselves back down to six point three. We're really chipping away at it. We're not at five yet, but we're really uh, making nice progress. This week, both Ford Motor and Yum Brands named new CEOs. Uh, Ford's chief operating officer, Mark Fields, will take over July 1st for Alan Mulally. And Greg Creed, the head of Taco Bell, is going to take over as the head of Yum Brands on January 1st. Jason, let's start with Ford Motor. This was the guy all along, Mark Field. Oh yeah, I mean there there was I mean we didn't know it for a fact, but I think we all kind of knew it. Um, you know, Mark Fields has been that guy who has really served as Alan Mulally's right hand man to help Ford make this turnaround. 
Uh, it was 2006 when Mulally got there, and Ford was operating at a you know, loss of around $15 billion, and they brought the company back up to profitability there. So, so Fields w- was part of really developing that culture that, that Mulally helped instill there. And, and I think this makes a lot of sense, and Mark Fields is still a relatively young guy, 53 years old, so we can expect, I think, a number of years of service from him. Uh, it, it was interesting to see Mulally, Alan Mulally, want to step down a little bit early. Uh, I, mean, I was reading where he... It's possible there is there is a, a tech firm out there talking him up as, as possibly joining their board, um, and we know that he is he is a big fan of serving in some capacity. So while he may be looking forward to retirement, he may not be fully retiring from this. Was I the only one surprised by the Yum Brands news? I mean, David Novak, uh, given all of the challenges that Yum Brands has had over the last eighteen months or so, it really seems like they've turned the corner. I figured he would want to be part of that resurgence that is, I think, a lot of people are expecting over the next couple of years. He's going out on top, baby. I mean, the breakfast taco had such a great reception. <laughs> I mean, you know, he's pulling a George Costanza to pull another Seinfeld reference. He's going out on top. But isn't that why this guy, Greg Creed, got tapped to be the next CEO at Yum Brands? I mean, he is the guy who gets credit for the breakfast taco, for the Doritos Locos taco. Makes a lot of sense. I mean, they've got someone in there with some good executive experience. Well, you know, I have to say, it might be a good time to come in because, I mean, it's just we know what Yum's comps look like, certainly, especially in China, year over year. So, it, it's not going to take a lot for them to get better, uh, I think see Creed, better results. Yeah, Creed's got to be looking at this and thinking, wow, this is a great opportunity, because the work has basically already been done, right? I mean, they've, they've tightened up their supply chain in, in China, and that's really a big, pivotal market uh, for young brands with their KFC presence there, particularly. So, he just kind of has to get in there and really not screw this up, and he's going to be in pretty good shape. Shares of eBay down this week after reporting a loss in the first quarter due to a tax charge because eBay is repatriating $9 billion in cash and will pay $3 billion in taxes on that. Why are they doing this, Matt? This is, this, this is a big question. Because, I mean, if you look at other companies that have a lot of cash overseas, Apple, Microsoft, Apple just issued $12 billion in debt a couple weeks ago at an average rate of 2.9%. And so, why take this big tax hit for eBay when they could probably do the same thing? I mean, their balance sheet is in great shape. Uh, they only have about four billion uh, in debt versus ten billion in cash. I mean, you know, doing a big bond deal of nine billion, for example, wouldn't wouldn't burden that balance sheet too much. So that's you know, the CEO John Donahoe gave some kind of vague saying, well, we need financial flexibility. We're worried about our credit rating long term. But I have to believe that this isn't something Carl Icahn would have signed off, but maybe so. I don't know. When you look at how the business is performing, though, if they're looking for ways to deploy that after taxes, six billion dollars. Putting more money behind PayPal seems like a pretty smart bet. Way to go. I mean, that is obviously the best part of the business. Revenue was up 19% there versus only 14% for the marketplace business. Uh, but that, uh, excuse me, 10% for the marketplace business. But still, I thought overall the results were pretty good. Now, if this helps them maybe make some acquisitions, do some buybacks, um, again, the $3 billion hit's kind of it's lost money, but they have some more money now to work with. Twitter's first quarter results were better than expected. Their monthly active users are now coming in at 255 million, but that's lower than expected, Jason. Uh, and we're we're seeing the growth slowing with Twitter. Yeah, but I mean, I feel like this has always been sort of that battle between expectations and reality. And maybe maybe now expectations are actually coming back to reality. And I mean, last year obviously being a tremendous year for the market uh, in general, and with your Facebooks and LinkedIns and tech doing so well, I think. There were some high expectations uh, baked into Twitter from the very beginning, but I mean, it, it, when you look at this quarter, when you look at the way the company's 
performing, it's doing very well. I mean, total sales up about 120% from a year ago. Timeline views are up. Ad revenue per thousand timeline views, that's up 96% from a year ago. It's not like these guys are, are messing the bed here. They're doing a great job. I think it's just the expectations were unreasonable from the get-go. And, and the stock price is back down to where now it seems a bit more reasonable. And let's just let them kind of deliberately grow this business. I think Twitter's here to stay. It's embedded uh, with a lot of their platform uh, partners. You know, they'll use NBA, for example. We're watching the playoffs here. Every playoff game you see, they've got that Twitter feed going. I mean, Twitter's a big part of a, a lot of these real-time events. And I think they're going to continue to exploit that, learn from it, and make a lot of money from it. Yeah, Ron, when you look at the stock, it's basically been cut in half from where it was in late December. Is it now in, in your value territory? Well, it's certainly not in our value territory, but we've, what? Ha- we've had it on our watch list um, for a bit of time, and we're, we're looking at it really closely. And what we're seeing now, I think, is the battle of the momentum investor versus the long-term investor. And, and the second you see growth slow, um, those momentum guys just dump the stock, which creates opportunities, I think, for long-term investors. Coming up, a little advice for any business. Don't make Steve Broido angry. You wouldn't like him when he's angry. This is Motley Fool Money. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here in studio with Jason Moser, Matt Argusinger, and Ron Gross. Shares of Coach down more than 10% this week after a third-quarter earnings report showed that sales in North America fell 21%. And Ron, if that's not bad enough, those were comp sales. <laughs> yeah, twenty-one percent. Yeah. Uh, uh, Coach also warned that sales in 2014 would, and I'm quoting here, moderate further. Uh, is that secret code for something? <laughs> See, it's secret code for things are not going well, and uh, this hits close to home because it is a holding of million-dollar portfolio, and then we've been smacked around um, pretty good on it. Uh, stocks down 24% over the last year versus Coors, uh, Michael Coors, which is up 65%. That's an 89% swing for those of you who aren't good with the math. Um, <laughs> North America is the trouble here. It's been deteriorating for quite some time as companies like Michael Coors and Kate Spade kind of eat their lunch. Um, bright spot is international, specifically China. But we need to see the North American business firm up. New designer, um, Mr. Vivers, has some some ideas behind that. Some good, critically uh, accepted new designs coming. We need to see that translate into sales because we can't keep seeing you know negative negative results like this. When do we? And as you mentioned, the designs have gotten some good reviews. When do those start rolling out? And when will we start to know if they are resonating with consumers? I think we're several months away still. So probably September, the fall. I think is what we're looking at. First quarter revenue for 3D systems came in higher than expected, but gross profit margins are shrinking. Maddie, um, a lot to chew on. What stood out to you in their quarter? Well, you know, 3D systems is a company that makes a lot of acquisitions, and so even though the top line number looked re- you know really strong, you, if you look at the organic revenue growth, it was 28 percent. So that, that's that's pretty solid. But you know, a company that is for many a lot of, a lot of 3D printers. Price pretty high, then maybe that's not fast enough. And yet, the gross margin you mentioned. I was actually pleasantly surprised, though, that if you look back, not just this quarter, but if you look back two years, um, gross margins held pretty steady. And that's really what you want to watch with 3D systems, because in my view, and I think a lot of people think that you know the 3D printer is is becoming a little bit more of a commodity product. There's a lot of competitors in there. There's prices keep coming down for the for the printers. So uh, if they aren't able to maintain those gross margins, you'd have to really question whether or not they have a sustainable Profit business model, and they do, but I mean, it's just how profitable can it be? Um, and gross margins are still holding pretty well. 
prices are coming down on this stock too. It's down about forty-five percent year it's, to it's, date. It's been tough. Is it a buy at this price, or is this we want to wait and see one more quarter how they're doing? I think you got if you if you like three D printing, and we certainly do in Supernova and Rule Breakers. We like the space. It's it's one you want to own in a basket. I, I walked away from CES uh, early, the Consumer Electronics Show in Vegas earlier this year, and I was amazed at just the number of three D printing companies. Um, and at that point, I think three D systems was at its all time high. Right at that point, and I walked away saying, you know. This is this is this is getting a little bit of a tight industry. I'm not as enthusiastic about it, but I still like it as a package along with say Stratasys or X1 and some of the other ones. Shares of LinkedIn falling on Friday after its latest earnings report. Uh, Jason, first quarter sales and profit both higher than expected. What's the problem? Not a bad quarter, uh, but yeah, I just to sort of echo on something Ron was talking about there earlier. I think this is sort of you see the momentum investors starting to flee from some of these bigger, uh, faster growing tech names. Uh, LinkedIn is still growing, uh, but the growth is slowing a little bit, and so I think that's probably got some people a little bit spooked, and so they're taking off and and looking for uh, for other other stocks out there. But no, I mean I think that LinkedIn, when you're looking at it from a long term perspective, they're still doing a lot of things well. Sales up forty six percent. I was really impressed with uh, the premium subscription segment of the business. I mean that's the smallest segment of the business, but they saw forty forty six percent growth in that segment as well, which uh, to me. Yeah, I don't know how sustainable that is. I don't know how many people pay for LinkedIn subs. Apparently, some of us do. Um, I don't. I don't know if anyone in here does. Do not. No. Uh, I think probably the biggest challenge LinkedIn faces, at least in the near term, is is one of engagement. Because really, while they're not they're not looking to to serve sort of that ad market like a Facebook does, they do need to find they need to, they need to give us a reason to go back to the site continually and keep our uh, profiles up to date. You know, I think things like endorsements have basically lost all meaning at this point. They've Pretty diluted, uh, so I think that's something they're going to have to work on there. But to put it in the context here, you look at LinkedIn today selling at 42 times uh, operating cash flow. You compare that to something like Facebook, and that's at 32 times. It makes sense. LinkedIn's smaller. Maybe we're looking for a little bit more growth there. But uh, yeah, I think that long-term investors, uh, this is actually a pretty good-looking stock at these levels. This week, Frontier Airlines became the first airline to charge for the following items: advanced seat assignments, putting carry-on bags in overhead bins. And water, which is now going for a dollar ninety nine on Frontier <laughs> Airlines flights, um, United Airlines became the first airline to incur the wrath of our man behind the glass, Steve Broido. Uh, first, Steve, uh, b- before we get to your recent experience with United, wh- what do you think of the Frontier Airlines charging for water and carry on bags in the overhead bins? Um, I think on the surface it's unfriendly, uh, but when you really dig down. All the airlines are charging for these things, it's just where those charges appear. So if I'm paying $500 for a ticket on United or $200 on uh, Spirit Airlines or, or whatever, or Frontier in this case, uh, you're still paying the same amount of money, they're just charging it differently. Speaking of United, um, you made only your latest uh, trip out to Las Vegas. Little trouble getting back to the office, though. Yeah, a little trouble in the form of a seven-hour delay. <laughs> Our uh, a plane that was supposed to leave at around 1, left around 8.30, two hours stuck on a plane, uh, and uh, multiple-hour lines to talk to people. They offered me a $7 food voucher, which I, <laughs> well, I that's nice. which is nice. You know, which as long is, as you got a voucher, I know. And uh, the, uh, the the closing deal was a $150 credit, which was generously offered. And I said, you know what, this isn't going to work for me. So uh, I have the United Mileage Plus credit card, which I canceled. Uh, I was a shareholder, sold my shares, and now I'm wow. shorting. Wow! Now I'm shorting United Airlines. <laughs> wow! Really? <laughs> Literally? Yeah. That is a guy taking action. Uh, Steve-o. I, con- I did. I contacted the company. I said, "Unacceptable." Don't cross this, Steve. This just is not cool. You know. Um, United uh, subsequently contacted me and offered me uh, 
an extra $100, bringing the offer up to $250. Um, I don't really know what I'm going to do with that. They've sent it to me. I may accept it. I may not. I'm not really sure what I'm going to do. Good for you, Steve. After taping, let me go out and buy you a coffee. Absolutely. Atta baby. I'll give you a $7 voucher for coffee. (laughs) Uh, Let's wrap up with the stocks on our radar this week. And Steve will hit you with a quick question. Ron, what do you got? Steve, a stock you never heard of, Lydol, LDL, $400 million market cap stock. They make filters and insulation for auto, medical, and HVAC type industrial applications. Uh, stock is at least 25, 20% undervalued right here. Uh, stock's around $24. We think it's worth at least 29 Steve? Is this the go-to company for uh, folks that are putting insulation in vehicles? I mean, is it Lidal and then number two is no one knows? Um, there are um, international companies, foreign companies that are b- larger than them, but they do have major contracts at uh, many of the OEMs. Matt Argersinger, what do you got? I'm looking at Zillow, ticker Z, of course, the online real estate company. Uh, they report earnings next week. This is a company that I have to say, if we've look, if you look at the momentum stocks and you know tech stocks and internet stocks have been crushed over the last few weeks, Zillow is keep keeps hitting new all time highs. It's it's incredible. Um, there's also news recently about Tiger Global taking a stake. That's a, that's a major hedge fund. They bought almost a 10% stake in Zillow. They also made a 50 million dollar investment in Redfin, which is a competitor of Zillow. So it's an interesting company to focus on right now. I'm interested to see if the, if the earnings match up to the stock price next week. Did you say the name of the hedge fund is Global? Tiger Global. That's a pretty yeah. strong name. Steve, question about Zillow? Seems like Zillow is trying to disrupt real estate as we know it today. Um, how does it does it stand a chance against thousands and thousands and thousands of realtors who just hate Zillow? They don't want to be disrupted. <laughs> they don't want. You know what? I'm better than an online resource. You know. So well, so in a way, they're not really disrupting the realtors. And the realtors, I think, even if even those that hate Zillow recognize the fact that it's just got tons of eyeballs, and then they're and they're willing to pay for the leads and and you know put their ads up no matter what. So it's I feel like it's just a resource to them whether they like it or not. I do think yeah, it's a misconception. They're not really going after the realtor. They're a resource for the realtor, and realtors have varying thoughts on that. My wife is a realtor, so I have a little. Uh, Information on this front, um, but they are a resource if you, if you want to you know capture and use them for marketing. Jason Moser, what do you got this week? Yeah, looking at MWI Veterinary Supply ticker is MWIV. They distribute animal health products to vets in the U.S. and the U.K. Uh, grown sales at twenty three percent annualized over the last five years. Net income up twenty six percent. Uh, I've actually spoken to the vet I take my dogs to. A lot of good things to say uh, about them as a as a distributor and supplier. And and so it's a stock with earnings coming up early next week. I will be keeping a close eye on it. Steve, what's the best name for a dog? Well, it's a tie between Duval and Piper. Those are my two dogs, and so I'm playing that card right there. You agree with that, Steve? I do indeed. That sounds great. Go Piper. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Ron Gross, Matt Argusinger, Jason Moser, guys, thanks for being here. Thanks, Chris. Coming up, a conversation with Pixar president Ed Catmull. We'll talk about Steve Jobs and the secrets behind Pixar's success. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. The highest grossing animated film of all time is Disney's Frozen. The second highest is Pixar's Toy Story 3. And it is not a coincidence that the same man is in charge of both companies. Ed Catmull is the president of Pixar Animation and Disney Animation, and in his 40 years in the business, he has helped revolutionize not just animated films, but the movie industry writ large. It is a journey that he captures in his new book, Creativity Incorporated, 
Overcoming the Unseen Forces That Stand in the Way of True Inspiration. Ed, thank you so much for being here. It was my pleasure. I think for a lot of people, their first encounter with Pixar is the movie Toy Story, which came out in the mid-90s. But one of the things that you write about is that Boy, Pixar was a lot around for a lot longer than that. What is sort of the origin story of Pixar, and how did you get involved? Well, the, the, the origin for me was growing up in the 50s, post the Depression, post-World War II, in a very safe environment. And uh, at that time, the two iconic figures were Albert Einstein and Walt Disney, uh, both of whom I uh, deeply admired. And But I grew up, I wanted to be an animator. And by the time I got to college, I realized I didn't even know what the path was to get there, so I switched over into physics. And it was in graduate school, where I also uh, had a degree in, com- in computer science, uh, that I was at the Foundation School for Computer Graphics. Uh, and I realized that here was the time to marry art and technology. So on getting my doctor's degree, um, I had the goal of creating the first computer animated film. And along the way, I, had, I met some amazing people. Uh, George Lucas bought into this. He was the first person in the film industry willing to bring high technology into the film industry. Uh, John Lasseter uh, joined us, who is a unique genius uh, in, this, uh, uh, in the field of animation. Um, and uh, after six years at Lucasfilm, Steve uh, bought us out from Lucasfilm or Steve Jobs bought us out in 1986. And at that time, there was no business. So we were selling hardware that we designed while we were at Lucasfilm for imaging and medical processing and and so forth. Um, And uh, Steve, at the time, had also bought Next. He had left Apple um, under difficult circumstances. So now there was two companies uh, that he owned, and uh, we started off this path of figuring out how to sell hardware while keeping alive our dream of making an animated film. Uh, we finally got our chance uh, when, because of a, of a great contract we had with Disney, they decided to let us uh, uh, also make an animated film. So we entered into that contract in 1991, and in 1994, Five, we came out with Toy Story. So this is now 20 years after starting down this path that we finally achieved the goal. I was going to say, it, it seems like the, uh, the overnight success that I think a lot of people just sort of attributed um, obviously took you close to 20 years to get there. You mentioned Steve Jobs. It's almost like Pixar is an afterthought when people think about Steve Jobs and his impact on the business world and everything that he did at Apple and reshaping the music industry with iTunes and the iPod and mobile phones with the iPhone. But walk me through a little bit of your experience with Steve Jobs because he could come off as as very forceful, um, even egotistical. Um, What was your first meeting with him like? Well, um, at the first meeting, he was actually still at Apple, and uh, and well, we were uh, uh, trying to spin out from Lucasfilm, and he disappeared from the radar, and we of course learned later it was because of his conflict with um, with Apple, um, and then he uh, wanted to buy us, um, 
to turn us into what later became Next. Uh, but we declined the first time. He then formed Next and uh, came back to us and again wanted to acquire us, but this time to let us be the kind of company that we wanted to be. Um, and it, the, the, the thing about Steve, which a lot of people don't realize, is that Steve went through what is classically called the hero's journey. So he, he'd build up this kingdom, if you will, which is Apple, and then he was um, had a conflict, and he, and he was he had to leave it. Um, and as he formed Next and as he formed Apple, he was initially the kind of person that people uh, have in their stereotypical view of him. Um, and he did have those characteristics <clears throat> when he began with. What people didn't realize is that Steve was so smart that while he was starting up uh, both Pixar and Next, um, he was doing a lot of things which you could call overreaching or uh, almost overachieving. He would get deals that were too good. In fact, they were so good they were good in the short term but not good in the long term. But Steve was so smart that he realized that these uh, ways of working um, uh, weren't res- uh, giving him the results that he wanted. So he changed his behavior. Um, he, the way he interacted with people changed. He became um, uh, very empathetic. The way he delivered hard news changed. And he was always really passionate and, and intense. But the way he delivered the news changed. And what's interesting is that after he made this change about 15 or 20 years ago, everybody that was with him stayed with him through the rest of his life um, because he was a good friend of them. And this, because they all stayed with him, nobody talked with the press or reporters or anybody else writing about him because uh, they weren't going to psychoanalyze Steve while he was still alive. So this arc in Steve's life is missing from the public record. You're listening to Motley Fool Money, talking with Ed Catmull. His new book is Creativity Incorporated, Overcoming the Unseen Forces That Stand in the Way of True Inspiration. I was telling you during the break, I love this subtitle because this really is a theme that pops up repeatedly in your book and in the history of Pixar and even carrying over into Disney animation. This It seems like there are so many points along the way where either a film is on the verge of collapsing, or in some cases, the company is on the verge of collapsing, where Pixar is facing financial troubles, uh, or in the case of some of the movies, it takes years to really figure out how to get the story right. How, uh, what is it about the culture at Pixar that enables your, you and your team to really work through these things? Because Let's face it, Ed, some of these movies that have turned out to be phenomenal Academy Award-winning films, at various points along the way, they are absolute train wrecks. Well, one of the things we learned uh, early on is that the beginning of a movie, when we first uh, basically mock it up, we we, we make what are called reels. So you, you draw what you think is going to happen, and then you edit it together with temporary music and temporary voices. And you get a feeling for what it's going to be. And these early versions are all terrible. As John Lasser would say, it's like the worst thing you've ever seen. So you need to go through several iterations to figure out what works or what doesn't work. 
But by definition, if they're terrible, you can't judge the team by what they've produced, because I just said it was terrible. (laughs) (laughs) So you have to judge them by the spirit of the team, how well they're working, are they focused, do they laugh, Um, are they intent? Uh, You you put all those things together, and, and you protect them at that early stage. So that was one of our our lessons, realizing that's how they all start, and that the, and that the front end is different than the back end. Uh, I, I will say that when we were uh, first struggling with Pixar, uh, I watched what took place at Disney, because Disney um, in the 90s produced this, this set of four phenomenal films, which was um, uh, Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, and Lion King. And then they started to go downhill. And the question is, okay, what's going on? Why are they going downhill? But I looked at other companies because I had friends in Silicon Valley. We were close to Silicon Valley, and a lot of my classmates formed well-known companies. But I would watch a lot of these companies rise and then fall, and yet they had smart and creative people. And so something was was going screwy with them. And so I began to, 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 to formulate this question of what's going on when you're successful, there's something mysterious that's happening because these aren't these aren't dumb people; they're really smart people. Uh, and I would even give an example from manufacturing uh, because Pixar initially uh, had to sell a computer, so we had to figure out manufacturing. And of course, the role model at that time was Toyota. And I realized that that figuring out the production line was a creative act. So this was an aha moment. And, and not just seeing how, how do they get to to be so good. It's like, well, they're actually creating it on the line and the way they give authority to people down the line. But you recall a few years ago they had a brake problem, and the management actually hid the problem from a while, uh, or from the public. So the question was, what is going on in that company that would make them go counter to a deep cultural value? So whatever the forces are, they're really strong, they operate all the time, and they're hidden. And the implication is that they're hidden from me, and I can't see them either. And unless we realize that, that that's going on, we can easily get blindsided and do some dumb things. Human nature is always at work here, and there are things that we can do to be more aware of it. We're not changing the nature, but if we're aware of the nature, then we can take an attitude which makes us uh, adapt to the changes and the, and the random things that life throws at us. Coming up, what do animators at Disney and Pixar think about competition like the Lego movie? More with Ed Catmull. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money, talking with Ed Catmull. His new book is Creativity Incorporated. Disney is obviously a huge corporation with many divisions. If you just look at the studio division, it makes up, I think, less than 10% of the overall company's revenue. And yet, I think, Ed, if I were the head of merchandising for the Walt Disney Corporation, I would be calling you every other week, just bugging you about what is the next thing in the pipeline so I can sell more dolls, so I can sell more T-shirts, et cetera. 
How much pressure do you get from other divisions within Disney? Because I have to believe that merchandising and theme parks are increasingly dependent on the creative output of Pixar and Disney Animation. Well, there are, there are three items there. Uh, first of all, um, all of Disney has been very good at not telling us what to do. Um, that is, if they were trying to do things to satisfy their particular needs, it, we would screw up the process. So everybody from uh, Bob Iger through the Consumer Products um, says, okay, just make great movies. Um, and that's worked really well. And, and a lot of people assume that, it, like, if they don't like something we do, they'll say, well, Disney made us do it. But it's not true. <laughs> Disney <laughs> has given us the ability to make good stuff, but they've also given us the ability to screw up. And uh, while it's always painful, they accept that that's part of the process. Um, the second thing is we, um, we didn't want to be an island because we – uh, and, and, and actually, that's what happened before. Was the the when Disney Animation was at that even when they were very successful in the '90s, the needs were so large that it could be overwhelming to the studio. So basically, they set up barriers and just kind of threw the film over the wall and said, "Do with it what you will." Um, we wanted a different approach, and so we, what we did was we put in a person who had responsibility to both sides. That is, there's a person who is responsible to us and to marketing. And, to, and another person has responsibility between us and consumer products. So the model that we, or the way we talked about it is like we're an island with bridges. So we need the, the ownership of the local culture, but we do not want to be isolated. So we want to have bridge people to make sure that there's a good flow of communication back and forth. And when you have the right people in there, then it just works wonders on both sides. Uh, but the third element in terms of the, of the toys is um, w- when we make our films, we have a span of risks. Uh, now, we want them to all be great films, so that goes without saying. But it's clear that if you make um, something like, let's, we just announced Incredibles 2 as an example, then um, the, the public wants it. Consumer Products wants it. Uh, it. It will be difficult to make, uh, but Brad Bird is excited about doing it. So while it will be difficult, it's a low-risk idea. So, um, so, so there's a certain range of our films which are low-risk. When you do a Cars film, then you know that we will do well with it. Um, and so there's, there's less risk with it. But at the same time, we've got the other end where the films would not pass the elevator test. So the idea of a rat cooking uh, does not sound like a commercial idea or a trash compactor that falls in love with a robot. Uh, or if you make a film about an old man who floats away on a house with a stowaway, well, no matter how successful the film is, you are never going to sell a lot of toy walkers. So what we try to do is say, okay, let's span this range, because you do want to do some things that are commercially likely to succeed, because we want to be healthy, and we're in a business. Uh, It's important for our films to do well. But we're also um, a group of artists, and we want to push the boundaries. So we will pick films that that are sometimes really hard to figure out. 
but by 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 saying it explicitly to people, we're spanning that range from the very hard or conceptually hard uh, to those that are likely to do well. Then we make ourselves financially healthy, and that allows us to continue to take risks. One of our guests in the past on the show has been Jim Senegal, the co-founder of Costco, uh, currently the chairman of the board and for a very long time the CEO. And one of the things we had talked about was how he would, from time to time, check out the competition. He would walk into a Walmart, he would walk into a Target, and just see how they are doing business and pick up what he could and put it to use for Costco. How much do you check out the competition? I'm curious with the success of a recent animated film like the Lego movie, if that's something that people at Pixar or Disney Animation are studying in any way. Well, first of all, the, uh, the, the people in the studio are all film lovers. And the movie business is unlike a lot of other businesses in that you want a healthy ecosystem. So it's to our advantage if other companies, uh, you know, Fox or Warner Brothers or, uh, or, or DreamWorks, puts out a good movie and people go and have a good experience. So if they have a good experience, they're more likely to want to go back another time and see another movie from somebody else. Um, and we're good friends with a lot of people in a lot of these different companies. So we, we want them to do well. But, of course, when our film is out there, we don't want any of them to be around. <laughs> <laughs> so we have this, like, uh, split personality on this. <laughs> it's like, do great, just don't do it near us. I know you've got a lot on your plate, but before I let you go, I have to ask, when it comes to the creative process, what's been the biggest change in your thinking since you first started your career? Well, I, I would say the, 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 the biggest recognition was that, um, that just this belief that everybody is creative and that people are focused on a small number of people and what they do do and just people want to turn into them. And it was a realization that no, actually problem solving is part of every element of our life. And it's how we think about the problems in our life. Um, and it's our intentions and our freedom to, uh, to think that we can make a difference that, that allows us to do something that, that makes a mark in the world. He is the president of Pixar Animation and Disney Animation. He's an Academy Award winner and he can now add best-selling author to his resume. Ed Catmull's book is Creativity Incorporated, Overcoming the Unseen Forces That Stand in the Way of True Inspiration. It is a great read. Ed, thanks so much for being here. Thank you, Chris. That's going to do it for this week's show. Our engineer is Steve Broido. Our producer is Matt Greer. The show's mixed by Rick Engdahl. I'm Chris Hill. We'll see you next week. We'll see you next week.